Well, we are going to return to Jerusalem with Jesus this morning as he puts in an appearance at the Feast of Tabernacles some six months before his death on the cross. But before we reach Jerusalem, let's actually observe how the story of Jesus begins in the Bible. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Jesus, of course, is the protagonist of the Bible story. And his story does not begin with Matthew 1 and verse 1 or with the four Gospels. The story, as we have it, begins where the Bible begins. Actually, in point of fact, his story extends into eternity past. But the first record of his activity is found in Genesis 1 and verse 1. The Word of God says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, we know this is the beginning of Jesus' story in the Bible because of the way that John's gospel begins. Listen to John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, or the Logos, was God. He... As a person was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That is the introduction to Jesus. As the Logos, he was there in the beginning, and he is one with God. He is the same God who made all things, including the heavens and the earth. The Logos is there from the beginning. So again, when we read Genesis 1 and verse 1, we are reading of Jesus. So keep reading and notice what the text says next. Notice what it says about water and light. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, the law God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So clearly the creation account begins with an emphasis on water and light. Water and light. The Logos spoke a watery world into existence. And the Logos spoke again and separated the light from the darkness. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos created water and light. Now we know from science that water and light are indispensable to all organic life. Without water, without light, without light, life would perish. And Genesis 1 confirms that water and light actually precede the rest of the entire created cosmos. Water and light were there first. This last week, my son Asher was reading to me some questions from some sort of knowledge or trivial pursuit game that we have at home. He was taking the cards out and reading them to me. One of the questions concerned how much water it takes to produce a slice of bread. I looked up the answer to confirm. Does anyone know? Asher, do you know? He's busy drawing a picture over there. All right. How much water does it take to create a a slice of bread? The answer is 11 gallons. I looked it up. Or 172 gallons to produce a whole loaf. That's a whole lot of rainwater 
and irrigation. And what about light? You need some 1,200 hours of daylight to grow wheat. That really is astonishing. A loaf of bread requires 172 gallons of water and 1,200 hours of light. And how much water and light do humans need? Or animals? Well, actually, we don't know because we don't even know how many animals there are. Scientists have developed robust taxonomies of the myriad varieties of life that creep, crawl, slither, swim, fly, gallop, and bounce across our planet. Nevertheless, scientists believe they've only cataloged, get this, about 15% of the planet's species. The World Atlas estimates there are some 8.7 million different species on the planet. The number of animals on this planet is estimated to be 20 quintillion. That's 20 billion billion. That's a lot of animals. And those 20 quintillion life forms on planet Earth were created by the Logos and depend on water and light for their daily existence. Without water and light, planet Earth would be a cold, barren, dark wasteland. When the astronaut Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, he memorably described it with two words, magnificent desolation. And the moon at least had light. Imagine a moon without light. So friends, creation begins with water and light. And let's take this idea now and return to John chapter 8, where Jesus comes to the Feast of the Tabernacles. John chapter 8. In John 8, the dry season is coming swiftly to an end. Israel converges on Jerusalem in preparation for the early rains, which will usher in the new year and rejuvenate the cycle of life. Jesus, on the great day, the final day of the feast, at the water ceremony, stands up and declares himself to be none other than the water of life. And if such an audacious claim were not enough to rankle the Jewish religious establishment, Jesus proceeds to call himself light. In John 8, verse 12, he is the light of the world. There could hardly be two more important symbols for life than water and light. Claiming to be water and light, Jesus the Logos connects us immediately back to the creation account. And when we listen carefully to Jesus' voice through the Gospels, we hear constant echoes of that creation week. The Logos, the creator of water and light, has come. Well, how will the Jews respond then to a man who makes these audacious claims? We know from chapter 7 the Jerusalem leaders dispatched the temple guard to arrest him, but the soldiers returned empty-handed. When the priests and Pharisees chastised the guards, the officers responded, back in chapter 7 and verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. Well, of course not. He's the Logos. No one else could possibly speak the way that Jesus spoke. And that brings us then to verse 13, where Jesus now enters into a dialogue with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees said to him, 
you are bearing witness about yourself, your testimony is not true. So forget about the signs that he has performed. They've already rejected those. Forget about his claims. They've already rejected those. The Pharisees at this point want to ensnare Jesus in a legal technicality of the law. Supposedly, the law prohibited Jesus from being a testimony to himself. Now, they don't specifically mention the law, but it's going to come up in verse 17. That is the background. They want to find a way to go after Jesus with the legal issue about the law. And their argument is really just straightforward. Jesus, you cannot be a witness to yourself. That's illegitimate. Therefore, we reject you. Now, we have to be very cautious in how we interpret this scene. It actually needs to be considered in light of John chapter 5. Let's actually turn back there momentarily. John chapter 5. In John 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem for an earlier feast. And here he healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. And then he proceeded to debate the Jerusalem leaders. And Jesus himself actually spoke the very words that the leaders charged him with in chapter 8. Look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So those are Jesus' words. And the Pharisees apparently have been scrutinizing those words from this previous conversation. And now in chapter 8, they want to dredge those words up and use them against Jesus. The essence of their claim in John 8 is this. Jesus, you cannot be trusted because you yourself said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But of course, they badly missed Jesus' point. Here in John 5, Jesus was not saying he could only be trusted when he had a backup witness for every point that he made. It's not what he's saying. Jesus was not saying we should assume he's lying unless he has corroborating witnesses. Again, that's not what he's saying. In fact, Jesus was not claiming that he needed any witnesses at all. He doesn't need witnesses. He knows who he is. He's God. He speaks the truth. He doesn't need witnesses. But what he was saying was this. If I am making statements out here that contradict the Father's testimony or the testimony of Scripture, then I'm not telling the truth. Well, that would be true. If I'm saying things that contradict the Bible, then I'm not saying true things. That is to say, if, if I'm saying things that other witnesses like the Father would contradict, well, then you can assume I'm not speaking the truth. But he's not saying I have to have witnesses. That's not what he's saying. So follow this, then. In John 5, Jesus does indeed offer corroborating witnesses to himself. But again, not because he needed them, but because he does have witnesses. And here they are. God the Father bears witness to Jesus John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus. Jesus' own works, his miracles, bear witness to himself. And the scripture bears witness to Jesus. And those four witnesses are located in verses 32 through 40, which we will not read at this point. So it is true that there were witnesses who backed up the things that Jesus was saying. And if it could be shown that Jesus was contradicting the Bible or contradicting the Father, then he wouldn't be speaking the truth. That's true. 
But Jesus is not saying, I have to have witnesses. That's not actually what he was claiming. In other words, if you want to prove that someone is lying, you need witnesses to point out the falsehood. However, we cannot assume someone is lying if he doesn't produce witnesses for every point that he makes. That's just an impossible standard. All right? So, take that earlier conversation and import it now back into John chapter 8. In John 8, the Pharisees are basically picking up where they left off in chapter 5, although several months have now gone by. And their argument with Jesus has actually been going on for quite a while now. It just kind of resurfaces every time he comes to Jerusalem. And so the Pharisees at this point select a certain statement that he made back in chapter 5, and they conveniently ignore the context, they misunderstand what Jesus was trying to do. And the essence of their argument is, hey, Jesus, you yourself can't bear witness to yourself. You can't do that. Well, again, they're selectively quoting him out of context. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. Of course not. They were twisting the earlier conversation. And in fact, they had actually ignored his four witnesses. So how will Jesus then respond Well, Jesus at this point is not going to rehearse the four witnesses here in chapter 8. If they rejected them in chapter 5, they're not going to accept them in chapter 8. At least we have no record of him bringing these witnesses back to the discussion. However, Jesus, moving forward, will focus on just one of those four witnesses, God the Father. Because he really wants to press the issue of his identity with God the Father. So with that in place, let's read his response in verses 14 through 18. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Well, in these verses, Jesus makes two points with a clarification in between. Let's notice them. Here's the first point, verse 14. First of all, he insists that his testimony to himself is valid. My testimony to myself is valid. I can bear witness to myself because I, in fact, know exactly where I came from. I came from the Father. I know where I came from, and I know I'm going back to that same place. And you Pharisees know nothing about me but I am perfectly confident that I know where I came from. Now, if you want to argue about the law, if you want to dredge up the law, well then, I'll concede to that. Jesus will also make a second point. If you want a witness, well, guess what? There are two witnesses that are required in some cases. So, secondly, Jesus insists that the Father bears a witness to Jesus. And that's verses 17 through 18. Now, he can speak the truth. You don't have to doubt him just because he doesn't have a witness. But if you want a witness, here it is. The Father bears witness to Jesus. 
Jesus invokes the Father once again as he did back in John chapter 5. And of course, the Father's witness is true. Now, between those two claims, Jesus offers a clarification that you don't want to misinterpret. He says in verse 15, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, Jesus does not mean by that statement that he never judges anyone. People like to rip verse 15 out of context and view Jesus as a sort of totally non-judgmental, touchy-feely deity who would just never condemn a single soul. That's how they view Jesus. But Jesus elsewhere, elsewhere tells us the Father appointed him to judge the entire world. I'm the judge of everyone, he says elsewhere. In fact, right here in the context in verse 16, Jesus speaks of himself as actually judging. His judgments are true because they are the same judgments that the Father would judge. In the early church, there's a heretic named Marcion who asserted the Old Testament deity, the Old Testament God was harsh and judgmental. He was a tyrant. But that Jesus, the God of the New Testament, was meek and mild. He couldn't possibly judge anyone. And this sentiment actually has a long history in the church. And there are millions of modern people who view Jesus as anything but a judge. They view him almost as a sort of softer side of God. They believe that Jesus comes along and sort of tones down the judgmental God of the Old Testament. How do you reconcile that notion with Jesus' view of himself in verse 16? Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. What are you going to do with that? Jesus' judgments and the Father's are just totally agreed. Jesus will render the identical verdict that the God of the Old Testament would have reached. You Pharisees, don't be deceived. When Jesus, what Jesus means in verse 15 is essentially this. You judge by human standards. That's what you're judging by. According to the flesh. You're judging by the wrong standards. You judge according to the flesh. But for my part, I don't judge by human standards at all. I do not judge by the same fleshly criteria that my opponents do. I judge according to God the Father's righteous judgments. All right, that's the explanation in the middle there. So let's come back. Here are Jesus' two main points. First, he insists that he can, in fact, be a testimony to himself. That's perfectly valid. And number two, Jesus insists the Father bears witness to him. That's verse 17. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. So do I have a witness? If you want that, sure, here he is. The Father, verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness. So again, Jesus says that you have every reason to trust me because I know where I came from. And you believe in God? Well, God backs up every word that I say. He is my witness. His witness is truthful, impeccably true. Now, of course, once again, Jesus could have brought up the additional witnesses that he identified back in John 5. He could have brought up John the Baptist again. He could have brought up the scriptures again, his works again. But what he wants to do is keep the focus 
on the Father. That's the real issue. Where is he from? Is he from the Father? The four witnesses, it's really his claim to be from the Father that is the most audacious. John gave us human testimony. Jesus' miracles were incredible testimonies, but then again, other prophets perform miracles. The scriptures were a powerful testimony, but lots of people claim the scriptures are on their side and they misinterpret them, as the Pharisees do. So Jesus here is just really keeping her attention on the primary witness, and that is God the Father himself. So, do the Pharisees actually understand his claims at this point? Do they finally understand what he's getting at? Yes. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So they get it. It really comes down to the Father. But then again, maybe they don't get it. Do they really know who the Father is? Jesus claims the Pharisees actually do not even know the Father like they think they do. But that's not all that he's actually saying in verse 19. Jesus, once again, is identifying with God the Father. And they totally miss his point. They want to know, well, who is the Father? We get it. You're claiming the Father, but who is the Father? And, of course, they do know something of Jesus' early ancestry. But they're totally unwilling to concede the point that Jesus might indeed be from God the Father himself. So their question reveals that they have this unwillingness to really concede that he might actually be from the Father. When they say in verse 19, where is your father? Where's your father? They are thinking in terms of an earthly father. And Jesus' condemnation is swift. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you guys are clueless. You don't really know like you think you know, but they shouldn't be. Why shouldn't they be clueless? Well, because Jesus has already had this discussion with them. Let's go back to John 5 once more, and let's listen to the earlier conversation about the Father. Back to John chapter 5. After identifying John the Baptist as one witness, Jesus identifies both his works, given him by the Father and the Father himself as a further witness. So look at verses 36 through 38. John 5, 36 through 38. Here's what Jesus said. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing... Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Well, when you read chapter 8, you get the distinct sense that we've already been here before, right? Like we've had this conversation before. We've already heard this argument. We've already had this discussion. We get that sense because we already have. It was right back there in John chapter 5. And in John 5, the Jews are completely unwilling to embrace Jesus after he claims to be from the Father. After he claimed to heal a man at the pool of Bethesda with the Father's help. 
In fact, the situation in chapter 5 actually reached a boiling point with Jesus, with the Jews actually seeking to kill Jesus. The whole conversation with the Jews about Jesus' witnesses was actually precipitated by a statement that Jesus made back in verse 17. But would you actually back up to verse 16, and let's read both. Here's the context. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So if you recall the context, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And this was enough to just throw the Jews into conniptions. How dare he do this? But in verse 17, he invokes God the Father. God the Father is working right alongside him on the Sabbath. There were actually two offenses. First, claiming that God worked on the Sabbath was was unthinkable. And then they claim that God was one's own father? I mean, this is veritable blasphemy. And verse 18 tells us the result. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They'd already begun trying to kill him all the more now. They're trying to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the Jews obviously want Jesus dead. That's already the case back in chapter 5. Now let's go back to chapter 8 and let's recognize that the Jews at this point are only going to redouble their efforts. The issue was his identity with the Father, identity with the Father chapter 5, chapter 8. It's the same issue, his identity with the Father. And the Jews have clearly already determined to put him to death. And Jesus knows it. And Jesus will not back down. Not at all. In fact, he will go on to claim to be the water of life and the light of the world. And he's going to come right back to that offensive claim that he made back in John chapter 5. I am one with the Father. Now, Jesus' relationship with the Father is going to occupy, occupy center stage for the rest of chapter 8. We won't work through the whole chapter today. All right, We don't have time for that. But in fact, by my count, the term Father occurs some 20 times in John chapter 8. You might just go through and underline every time you see the word Father. This really is about his relationship with the Father. And let's just note a few things about how this discussion develops. As the discussion continues, Jesus points once again to the ignorance of the Jews concerning his true identity with the Father. Look at verse 27. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I can do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. But clearly the Jews don't get it. Jesus and the Father are one. Essentially, Jesus says, you don't get it and you won't get it until after you've killed me. Well, how do the Jews respond? The Jews respond by claiming, we have Abraham as our father. Look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus retorts, no true children of Abraham would be trying to kill me. 
The Jews then accused Jesus of being born in immorality. Look at the middle of verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Friends, they did not embrace Jesus' miracles. Do you really think they embraced the virginal conception? Of course not. And Jesus, for his part, responds in verse 44. Look at these words. You are of your father, the devil. Friends, this conversation is really intense. They reject Jesus as being born in bastardy. And Jesus, for his part, calls them the offspring of Satan. This is a really intense conversation. And keep reading and notice how intense Jesus is. And your will, your will is to do your father's, that's the devil's, desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. When he says he's the father of lies, he's the father of other liars like you guys. You murderers, you liars, you have the devil as your father. Friends, this is anything but a polite dialogue. If the Jews wanted Jesus dead in John 5, don't for a minute assume the situation is any different now. They must have been just seething with rage at this point in John chapter 8. And we already know from chapter 7, the Jerusalem authorities have already dispatched soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. Their intent was lethal. This conversation actually is even more aggressive than the conversation that Jesus would have with the Jewish leadership at his trial. I mean, you compare the two, this conversation is even more aggressive. So, I have a question. If the Jews are seeking to kill Jesus at this point because of his identification with the Father, and they really want him dead, why don't they succeed? Why don't they kill Jesus at this point? We know that ultimately they will succeed. We know that a cross is looming out there on the six-month horizon. But why doesn't Jesus end up dead at this point? It's an interesting question. If you're out laboring for Christ and you experience real opposition... If you're persecuted for Christ, if you're in some part of the world where there's real opposition, what keeps you alive? What keeps you alive? Well, let's notice a couple delightful texts. Let's also make a point that I've made in a previous sermon. First of all, let's glance back back at John chapter 7 and remember the scene where the temple guard sweeps through the streets looking to arrest Jesus. The guard has been dispatched by the rulers. And ultimately, of course, they return empty-handed. Why? Well, look at the answer in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? Why didn't you arrest Jesus? I mean, we sent you out to do that. What's the answer? Here's the answer. Verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. That really is incredible. These are heavily muscled, well-armored soldiers who are tamed by the voice of Jesus. 
Would you just try to really picture this scene? Picture these tough guys. They don't mess around. They're on a mission. But when they hear the Logos speak, their resolve just melts away. And they return empty-handed. Now, on a human level, Jesus clearly was not arrested because the soldiers were intrigued by his preaching. No one ever spoke like Jesus. That's what the text says. They could not bring themselves to arrest this man. Well, that is one level of explanation. But have you ever noticed that the Bible sometimes confronts us with multiple levels or layers of explanation for the same events? I think that you probably have because I pointed this out previously. Chapter 8 also explains why it was that Jesus was not arrested. And the explanation is actually different. What's the explanation? It's different, but it's not contradictory. It's found in verse 20, chapter 8, verse 20. Why was Jesus not arrested? These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Well, why not? Because his hour had not yet come. Well, why wasn't Jesus arrested? Because God has his own timing in these affairs. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has an hour. The hour of death that God had determined for Jesus in eternity past had not yet arrived. Now, friends, I do not know the secret counsels of God, nor do you or anybody else. What we see is on a human level. A band of thunderstruck soldiers mesmerized by the teaching of Jesus. But behind that scene are the secret workings of God's providential will in human history. You've got both things operating in Jerusalem. Now, if you'll turn to Acts 2, I want to show you another example of this. This is probably my favorite example in all the Bible. So I've used it before. Acts 2. I also love the example in the book of Exodus where... The people of Israel are threatened by the Amalekites. And Moses goes up on the mountain and he lifts up his hands in prayer to God. But he tells Joshua, you take your sword, you get your men, you go out there and fight. Who is responsible for the victory? Joshua with a sword or God who is beseeched by prayer? All right, who is responsible? Well, in Acts 2 we find two explanations given in a single breath. Two statements breathed out by Peter, who has just been filled by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He is going to stand up and preach the first sermon in church history. And Peter will explain to us why Jesus died. I mean, this is the most significant moment in human history, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So why did this happen? This most important event in all of human history, why did it happen? 
Well, Peter's text is Joel chapter 2. And his subject is a man named Jesus of Nazareth and how he fulfilled Joel's prophecy. And notice verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, that's the subject, Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus whom you know, whose miracles you witnessed, well, whatever became of him, look at this incredible statement in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So why did Jesus die? Well, before we answer that question, think back to John 7 and John 8. Why was Jesus not arrested and not sentenced six six months earlier? Well, here's one explanation. The soldiers were dumbstruck by his teaching. They couldn't bring themselves to arrest him. But here's another answer. His hour had not yet come. Well, who determined that hour? Was it the soldiers? Was it the high priest? Clearly not. They've already tried to get him. Who determined that hour? Well, what does Acts 2 reveal? Here is one explanation. Jesus was pressed through six unjust trials by ruthless, lawless men. There was nothing legal about those trials. He was crucified at the hands of lawless men, just as Peter says here. His death was a shameful, illegal, treacherous death. Jesus was totally undeserving the Jews finally pulled it off with some help from the Romans to make it appear official. That's one level of explanation. They finally succeeded. But there is another explanation. And in this case, Peter actually prioritizes this explanation by mentioning it first. Here it is. Jesus was delivered over the Jews according to the definite plan, and foreknowledge of God. God had indeed determined that hour for that crucifixion. God determined it. So friends, my purpose today is not to get into the whole discussion of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, other than to say clearly you've got both working together here. Peter has no difficulty assuming both within the parameters of a single sentence. He can just easily breathe out both. However, I do want to recognize the obvious by way of conclusion this morning. Friends, the world is full of evil people plotting against God. That is true. Psalm 2 tells us that. Evil rulers try to throw off God's restraints. Evil rulers want to go their own way. Evil rulers want to dismiss Christianity. Evil people plot against God. It happened to Jesus. It happened through his entire ministry. Sometimes we think of Jesus as just, you know, there's a last-minute turn of affairs when Jesus came into Jerusalem on his donkey. That's not what happened. It's not like they were willing to embrace him as king one minute and kill him the next. It, it was the Galilean pilgrims who brought him to the Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem did not want him. 
They plotted against him his entire ministry. They're out to get him. But Jesus' labor is under that threat and goes about his business and accomplishes everything the Father set about for him to do. And we need to understand that there is another layer of interpretation here that we have to invoke when trying to understand the ministry of Jesus, another layer of interpretation that we need to use to actually interpret our own lives. Our, our lives actually need to be interpreted. Do you realize that? Our, our lives need to be interpreted. On Wednesday nights, we're looking at Ecclesiastes, and here's a very wise man, and he's trying to interpret his life, and sometimes he does a very bad job of it because he's not fully illuminated by the Spirit. All right, Our lives need to be interpreted. We dare not simply live without attempting to interpret our existence, and that's why we have the Scripture. We have a Bible that helps us interpret everything to make meaning out of the incoherence of our lives. And friends, what we can learn from this is there is a sovereign God who actually numbers our days. He numbers our days. I'm thankful for doctors that try to keep us alive. Nothing wrong with that. But God also has determined the number of days you're going to live. There is a sovereign God who appoints circumstances for us. I'm thankful for people who try to protect us from bad things. I'm thankful for policemen. But sometimes bad things happen. They happen to Jesus. And there was a sovereign God who protects us in ways that we probably are oblivious to. I mean, think about how many little microbes are floating around the air out there that you could breathe in and die from. All right. There, there was a sovereign God who numbered Jesus' days and who had an agenda for everything that Jesus was supposed to accomplish. And he determined that after he accomplished those things, he would die at this particular hour. So friends, if I can come full circle and end where we began, there is a creator at the beginning who spoke water and light into existence. And a creator who proceeded to create all life on our planet. And a creator who ordained our lives and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. And God's care for us did not cease with creation. God's care for us is evidence every day of our lives. And again, on Wednesdays, we have been looking at all the frustrations, the frustrations that Solomon discusses in Ecclesiastes. And I dare say that some of you have experienced the same. God ordains frustrations in our lives. Do you realize that? God ordains frustrations. We don't like it, but God ordains frustrations, difficulties, trials. And Solomon tries to explore the riddles of existence. Job does the very same thing. Neither one can finally penetrate through it all. But both are going to recognize that in the end, there is a sovereign God who does as he pleases. And so, friends, we have to let God use difficulty and challenge and problems and uncertainties for our good. None of us like those things, right? None of us like those things. We want all the answers in place. But God ordains frustrations for our good. Think again of Jesus' death at the hands of wicked men at the time appointed by the Father. Friends, if God can bring the greatest good 
the greatest good out of the most diabolical, wicked act in all of human history. Can He not bring about good for us in the frustrating circumstances that He has ordained for our lives? Certainly He can. And wouldn't you say the most evil day in all of human history was the day of Christ's crucifixion? And wasn't it equally the most glorious, consequential day in human history as God put His stamp of approval upon that death by raising Jesus from the grave? Don't you suppose that God knows how to bring good out of evil. Shall we pray? Father, we pray for anyone here today who might be really suffering with some uncertainty, some questions. Lord, that you would just reassure them this week and today through the life of Jesus that you bring about good even in difficult circumstances. We pray, Lord, that This week would be a week of tremendous thanksgiving, even for those among us who are suffering, that you might bring about joy in our lives. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.